Good evening. You are here. We're welcoming you to East is East on April 28, 2008, 2009, to a QSO and VSO RV get together. Welcome. So we tonight we also have as um, honoured guests we have Nancy Garrett who has served with us a long time ago. Her late husband Lewis was a very significant part of our history, and we all missed him very much. And uh, wish he was with Lewis, Lewis Perrin, uh, yes, sorry. Um, I wish he was here with us today, and I'm sure he is in spirit because he had a lot to do with this organisation. And Juanita Tapa, who is um, she showed me this huge big statue that she got from uh, CUSO for serving on our board for an extended period of time. And she uh, managed to recruit many other new board members. So Juanita, Nancy, thank you for joining us. We also have Tannis Clark here tonight. And Tannis is um, uh, our CUSO Circle member. And that means there she is. She's a lady of influence. <laughs> So we will influence her, and she'll help us influence this community to doing more work with us. Of course, you know that uh, with uh, CUSA has a, quite a bit of CEDA funding, and uh, tonight, by the way, we have some wonderful new CEDA maps uh, of the world with information about the world, and we are always grateful to CEDA uh, for do, working with us and believing in our work, and they just uh, uh, told us uh, recently about their youth program that they have now um, decided to fund for the next five years. So as government is in transition, it's really nice to see that CEDA is still there to support us. But of course, those funds come as matching funds, and hence we all need to help e each other and QSO BSO continue to work in our fundraising area. Uh, recently, I just started working for QSO BSO um, uh, last year. So I'm new. And I've never served with QSO VSO, but I had a QSO teacher in Uganda in the 70s. And, um, and it wasn't Juanita Tepper, it was somebody else. <laughs> um, but that person had a huge influence on my life and uh, made me feel that Canada was a tremendous place, a place where people were very, very generous and thoughtful and... Um, really believed in collaboration and a one-world kind of theory. And I felt like when I came here in 1973 as a refugee from Uganda, that uh, I was coming to a warm place, a place where, well, not really that warm, but <laughs> a place where I would be very welcome. Um, and I, I'll say that in selling the idea of QSO VSO is really what I do. I'm your public engagement officer. I keep the RVs engaged, hopefully. I sell the idea to new potential volunteers. We've had, uh, as I said, more applications than, than we can handle right now. And the average age of people that serve with QSO VSO is around 44. So it's no longer you youngins that went straight out of university. So it's usually experienced people that have something to offer in other regions of the world because those regions have changed. The world has changed. And uh, the, those that went as teachers, now they are trained teachers in those countries. So we don't want to really send straight up teachers. We'll probably send educators and administrators to the next level to help with those 
that kind of work. So in selling QSO VSO, I felt that I needed to go and find out about QSO VSO's work in the world. So, um, so I'll start with the first story of the night. Um, long ago, far away, but it could have been just yesterday, um, I left Uganda in 1973. Um, it was a very, very rough day that I left. It was a day where I saw a, ch a gentleman shot at the airport, where I managed to grab my jewelry and get on that plane and, and left because a CIA agent helped me get out of the country. And I ended up in Medford, Oregon, <coughs> of all places. Um, they expected me to show up in a sari or some African outfit, but I had uh, really high heel boots on and a mini skirt, and they had no idea where I got that style from. Anyway, I ended up in Medford, Oregon, and I ended up with the family of the CIA agent, and they took good care of me. And then I came to Canada, uh, sat at the office in San Francisco, the Canadian Consul Office until, I was 16 by the way, until they let me into the country. I just did a sit-in at that age because they had, my parents had come to Vancouver. They didn't want me to come to Canada because I didn't have a passport anymore. I was a Ugandan, now I wasn't a Ugandan, so how do you come to a country without a passport? And finally they let me in because I threatened to speak to the press, etc. So I've always been a press hound. So, anyway, with QSO VSO, um, in November, December, I wanted to go to Kenya and Uganda and to see the work that's being done there. And I didn't want to tax the system and, and uh, get them to pay for it. So my sister, uh, Dr. Nazira Kesser in San Francisco, gave me her points. My family gave me some money. And uh, they put me up in Kenya. So... My story in Kenya starts with me going to my grandfather's place in, in Mombasa. And I must say that it's very different when you have family there that lives a pretty luxurious life and you're a volunteer there. So I'm staying, I'll just put it in perspective, I'm staying at my grandfather's beautiful villas in Mombasa. And there are only eight villas and it's an Ayurvedic yoga place. And Anything you want, you can get, and they put me up there, and I'm totally spoiled. And as we were driving to this wonderful place, we passed this town called Ukunda, and our driver, my grandfather's driver, said, put your um, uh, windows up and don't look out the window. This is a dangerous place. So then I get there, and I start getting emails, and I get my first assignment of my podcast to do with a volunteer. And she is in Ukunda. Okay, so I'm just a bit, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I told you that story about Uganda and the perspective. So you can imagine I'm a bit nervous and I'm not sure how I feel ab about being there. So we get the driver to drop us from his, you know, in the Mercedes, quite a, a bit of a distance away from Ukunda. And so we could walk in there. So we walk in there, my daughter and I, and she was there as our photographer, and we meet our volunteer. The volunteer is from England, wonderful lady, and she's meeting at the very gas station where the driver told us that that was where all the robberies and horrible things happened in Akunda. So I sat down for um, lunch with her and her community partner, 
And this project is an HIV AIDS project. Um, the food was delicious. I'm not sure I felt comfortable eating it, first of all, because I didn't quite know whether it was going to be safe. That had been spoiled, and now it was... But I watched that volunteer totally blend in with the people that were there, talk to them like she knew them on a daily basis, and I thought, boy, that's the kind of experience I want when I come to Kenya. So she took, took us on a, on a uh, taxi, and we went to this center. Now... It was an HIV AIDS center, and it was a, uh, an area where all the women that were there were sex trade workers. I hadn't hung out with sex trade workers in my daily life. Uh, so, and they were all in hijab. They were all in hijab, and I, my mind, I'm a Muslim woman, by the way, and my mind is saying, okay, so these are sex trade workers, and they're in hijab. I just don't get it. Anyway, we sat down under a mango tree, and there were about 40 of them. And they were being given a stipend from this local community group. Our volunteer was there to try increase their capacity. And what does that mean? She was making sure that they had condoms to give out, that the, she was writing fundraising applications to the Gates Foundation. She was doing a lot of work to fund this particular resource center. And this resource center was an educational resource center. These women in hijab were going out into their community and speaking to um, Muslim clerics, etc., talking to them about HIV-AIDS. I'm certain that nobody in this room would be able to have that conversation, but these ladies were having these conversations. And at one event, they gave 50,000 condoms out. And I will tell you that the... HIV AIDS incidence in that area of Kenya is going down because of people like that and because of volunteers like ours who are in the field helping them make sure they have literature that's translated into Swahili, that they have all the facilities they need to um, make that, that whole program work. So it was I sat down, and uh, by the way, I do speak Swahili, so I sat in the circle, and I told them the story of my husband, um, whose name was Gary Whitlow, who was from Vancouver, who died of HIV-AIDS. And I will tell you that at that point, the door opened, and I had a wonderful conversation with the, with the ladies, um, the sex trade workers that were there. They were fantastic, innovative, interesting, and they had their own microcredit system. So the stipend that we were that was being given to them from these all these organizations organizations, they were putting together and helping each other fund small enterprises. And many of them had are not involved in sex in the sex trade anymore. And I think that's just one example of the brilliance of the work that's being done in the field. I also got to swim with a turtle in, in uh, Watamu where they're doing turtle rescue and, uh, and they're familiarizing the community with their heritage and their relationship to sea turtles. A lot of Italians are buying beautiful areas, uh, beautiful waterfront homes there and building huge um, walls on the beach so people don't come onto their property. But these are walls but the turtles can't get by. So the community advisor that's come from the Philippines 
is there helping educate schools and people about sea turtles. I visited two doctors in Uganda and, um, and many more volunteers as well as staff. So I got to see Zia from Jitali. I got to see the volunteers from the Philippines, from Poland. And I think the beauty of the merger began to come, come to me. But that this world, it kind of, we're kind of like Star Trek now. In that we're working side by side with other people in the world. So as we change from the Canadians going over there, now we're North Americans working side by side with the Dutch, with the English, with the Philippine, people from the Philippines, and we're collaborating together in a way that has never been done before. And I would say, Wayne, that's, that's the pride I take in that monitor, is actually seeing it in the field. So that's my story. By the way, I have to tell you that when I went to Uganda, they tried to make me pay $50 to get into the country. And I got off that plane and I walked in there and I said, I'm not paying the $50. They took me and my daughter to a confined area. There was the, the military presence. My daughter was saying, Mother, just pay it. And I said, I was born here. I deserve to be here. And I had a sense of completion on this trip. And I was able to say, that I'm not going to pay the $50 they agreed to let me in. And uh, then I said, my daughter's not paying either. <laughs> so if you're going to negotiate with me, that's the kind of negotiator I am. <laughs> Judy Store from the Maldives from 1997 to 1999 has agreed to tell us a story. So if you're ready, Judy, that would be great. And I really encourage you all to come and tell a story. Thanks, Judy. Brave girl. <laughs> all right. Can you bear me at the back? Good? Okay. Okay, so this is really a funny story about um, cultural differences, you could say. And uh, my assignment was with the hotel school in the Maldive Islands to teach them English. And uh, I think I'd only been there about four months when the graduating class was having their graduating party. And it turned out that this party was to go to a desert island, a real desert island, and stay there overnight and have a party. And the staff were asked to volunteer. And I thought, well, I guess I should volunteer. So I put my name down to volunteer. And I was told that the one of the local, my local colleagues was coming along and fine, you know. The Japanese teacher volunteered and of course at the last minute there were the two of us and the graduating class. So off he went in a, a dhoni, a boat, and they had all the food and everything. We didn't have to do anything, we just turned up and whatever. And they, uh, quite entertaining uh, trip with many, many hours on the boat. They sang the whole time. And when someone ended a song, the last word, someone would pick up that word and sing another song. And it was this game they played. So that was the entertainment we got there. Of course, it was a Muslim country, so there was actually no alcohol, no drugs, nothing like that. So that was, that was nice. There's very few women in this group, maybe about four, and myself and the Japanese teacher, and the rest were all these young men. 
anyway, we uh, had the food, whatever, I can't remember, maybe barbecue, and uh, there were two caretakers on this island, because it is used by the resorts to take their guests to a desert island and have a very romantic experience. <coughs> so there was a couple of buildings, and uh, this must have been some sort of, no, we must have had batteries. Anyway, they had their ghetto blaster, and they were playing music, and we were dancing on the sand, and it was beautiful, and... Anyway, I got to the point where it must have been way past midnight, and I said, well, I'm going to bed. And I'm in the bed uh, far away from this party as I can, so I can sleep. And they said, well, no, 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 you've got to sleep here in this, this grotty cement building with a dirty bed on it. And so the Japanese teacher said, well, I'll go in there. The party was right outside. And I said, no, 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 no. And I brought myself along all a sheet sleeping bag, and was white, and I, I said, I've got this, I'm going to sleep on the sand at the far side of the beach. I mean, this island was, I don't know, a few hundred meters thick, that's all it was, right? And, and then they were very, very worried about this, but I said, no, 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 I'll be absolutely fine, and, and they couldn't accept that I was going to sleep all by myself. And I said, there's nobody on this island but you and me, and no one's going to come here in the dark, and there's these two caretaker guys who had met didn't speak any English, but fine. And uh, so what's there to worry about? The only thing I was worried about were these enormous big crabs that built holes in the sand. They <laughs> <laughs> already came out at night. And I was a little concerned whether they'd leave me alone. But in the morning, I had a beautiful circle with holes all around me. So no problem. <laughs> so I had a lovely sleep. I was fast asleep under this tropical night with the stars out and the surf on the, on the beach pounding away. It was just beautiful. And then suddenly, I was woken up with this light in my eyes. And these two caretakers were there with this very strong flashlight. And they were shining it all over me. And then I moved as I woke up. And they went, ah! <laughs> and I realized who it was. And they were totally freaked out. And they said, danger, dangerous, dangerous. I was so angry at being woken up from my lovely sleep that I said, uh, the only dangerous thing will be me if you don't leave me alone. Go away. They understood go away. <laughs> Apparently they went running back to the students who were still dancing and, um, and uh, told them that they'd been totally freaked out by this dead body. It <laughs> was washed up on the beach and that it was a jinni who were the spirits that live in the water. But they are very, very real to them. Maybe you've heard about jinnis. And um, quite freaked out. And, in the, in the, in the more, and then in the morning when I woke up at, at daybreak, I realized that all the girls were sleeping around me. And most of them didn't wake up till about noon that day. So I had quiet morning. I went swimming. Snorkeling. <laughs> Anyway, at the very end of my two years there, I uh, was invited by some friends, Maldivian friends, to go night fishing. She'd go on the reefs night fishing on sure, and some other festivals, and off we went in this boat night fishing. Of course, the only people who catch fish are the Maldivians. We never caught anything, but they caught lots of nice, great big fish, and so we were going to this uh, desert island to cook the fish that belonged to the, one of the guys on the boat. This island is his private island. So we got there, and we started cooking up the fish, and it was about 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, I think, and um, I looked around, and I said, I've been here before. I remember. 
And I started saying the story, and these, these men looked at me and they said, You're the woman! <laughs> you totally freaked out our caretakers and we have to get new ones! <laughs> So that's my story. Thank Thank you so much. So that was um, Judy. The Maldives sound like a fabulous place. Um, If you would like to hear these uh, stories again and the stories that I, the recordings of the volunteers that uh, that I interviewed in Kenya and Uganda, you'll go go to qso.podomatic.com and you'll find those stories, and I encourage you to take some of your own stories and send them to me, and we can upload them. So, Wayne, do you want to tell us a story? Or was that no, your that speech? Was, uh, okay. For my previous Okay. Okay, Patrick Lucas was in Laos at between 2005 and 2007. And thank you for agreeing to tell us a story. I've never been to that part of the world. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exhausting is a pretty good way to describe it. Can you hear me in the back? No? Is this thing on at all? Yeah. yeah. Can you hear me now? Okay, good. I'll uh, try to control the tone of my voice. I tend to get really uh, really loud or really quiet. Um, so, yeah, I was, uh, I was posted in Laos uh, with QSO. I volunteered with QSO. Um, and I was uh, posted in a small town called Udumsai, which means Fertile Victory, in uh, the far north of, of Laos, in uh, about 200 kilometers northwest of Luang Prabang, if anybody knows the geography at all. Uh, it's a very small little town, about 7,000 people, in a little deforested valley on basically a truck stop. Uh, people trucking goods in from China or from Thailand or Vietnam. So this, is, this was my little home. I, uh, I worked for a group called the Science, Technology, and Environment Agency, and I did all kinds of different projects, whether it was uh, land use management or uh, watershed management. But one of the favorite things that I did for the full two years that I was there is I worked with uh, small Kamu villages, one of the uh, dominant ethnic groups in the province, to develop business cooperatives for building and selling biosand filters. And it was, it was a little pet project that I kept going for a long time. And uh, over the two years, it really helped me to get a sense of what it means to go into a different culture, into a different country, and to help, what, what exactly that means. And with technology, if anybody's ever worked with trying to introduce technology into a developing country, it's really difficult to get people to buy into the technology and <coughs> adopt it into their lives. And you, and you can never really figure out why sometimes. It, it can be anything from believing in uh, you know, bad spirits might be coming from the sand that you're using, or it can be any number of things, and it's learning about that and figuring out what it is that can actually be one of the most interesting parts of the job. Well, the Kamu people actually accepted the, the water filters that we were developing with them. They, they accepted them quite well into their community, and I was always amazed at sort of how they adopted it into their lives, or how they adopted it into their houses. These things were made out of cement, so sometimes you'd see them making little sculptures out of them, or they they build them right into the wall of their home. So I was always really fascinated by how they actually developed it. But it took a little while for us to get past the development stage because we had to learn how to make them. They're a really simple technology. They're called a biosand filter. And just to break it down for you, basically you're filtering water through sand and gravel. But you have to de- get it just so 
that uh, the water goes through the filter at one liter per minute. You don't get just that perfect mixture of sand and rocks and clay just right. It'll come out too fast, which means it's not clean, <coughs> or it'll come out too slow, which means they're, you know, it becomes inconvenient and the people don't use it. And it actually took us a really long time to work with it. We'd have these experts come in, they'd do a workshop, and they'd build one perfectly right away, and then we'd spend the next six weeks trying to get it right. And it would get to the point where I was the only one still mucking around with the sand and trying to get it right. And all my colleagues would say, oh, he's just a crazy, crazy Canadian guy who likes to play with sand. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I was trying to build these biosand uh, bio filters and trying to get people to accept it into their culture. And after a while, they were just kind of ignoring it. And I was one time I was in this village, and I was building a biosand filter at the local temple. And I was starting to get really frustrated. I was like, this one has got to work or that's it, the program's done, and I'm never going to get them to, to accept this technology. So there we are, it's, it's getting around dusk at the temple, and if you've ever been to a, uh, like a, a Buddhist temple, dusk is actually a very important part of time of the day. This is when the, the monks would gather in the clearing, and they'd have their drums and their chimes, and they'd sing the, the call on the spirits for the day. And I was over in one corner with all my teammates, and we're trying to get this filter to work. And I'm sitting there, I'm praying, I've got my little water bottle out, I've got my stopwatch, and someone pours in the bucket of water, and I've got it down there, and we're counting and we're timing. And all of a sudden, the monks in the background start going away at their thing. They're doing the thing. They're calling in the spirits, and it's like, boom, 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 chime, 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 and they're chanting, and everybody's getting really excited. Halfway through the bottle, it's 30 seconds. I'm starting to freak out. This has got to work. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. It's three quarters of the way. We're 45 seconds. Things are getting, the band's starting to really beat away, and everybody's starting to chant, and they're nopping, and they're nopping. And then it gets to a minute, and the, bo the bottle was perfectly full. And everybody stood back and cheered, oh my god! <laughs> and I was just like, totally relieved, I couldn't believe it. Six weeks had gone by, I couldn't have gotten one of these better. And then one of my colleagues came up to me and said, well that was the problem. You didn't bring in the religion. <laughs> <laughs> so for every single workshop that we had, for the rest of the time I was there, we'd always organize and make sure we had a bunch of monks in their band. <laughs> And they'd rock out right when we needed to get the filter perfect. And I swear to God, every single time, it worked perfectly. Wow. Wow. Thank you. That's beautiful. Now, nobody else has signed up, and I know that Tony... You didn't sign. You've got to sign. Just put a signature here so that I have permission to broadcast it. Otherwise, if you insist. You might sue me. I, I won't sue you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Oops. I'm Tony Akerstone. and I went originally with VSO England to the Kalahari Desert, Botswana, in 1960. And as Robert says, my three children had to listen to the fact that Dad had gone to Africa and the Kalahari Desert when he was 18. Uh, and obviously something stuck because I think Robert thoroughly enjoyed his trip to the Philippines. But one of the things I thought you might find interesting is, and uh, Wayne, I'm not really trying to pinch a page from your book, um, what, what I found most encouraging is when I went back to Nigeria in 2007, I found the culture of BSO and QSO has changed very little in the 40 years that's uh, gone by. We don't go to teach, we go to share. We don't go to impose our standards and values, we go to learn about them, and I think all of us would say that we learn more than we shared with them. But what I found particularly interesting was in Nigeria, the team that's in Nigeria, 
very much had the same message and the same culture that I remember all those years before in the Kalahari. What is also very interesting is Robert and I found it very interesting comparing notes. Robert was dealing in Mindanao, and I was dealing in Nigeria. My job was secure livelihoods, where I was trying to get Muslim farmers to sell their corn and grain to Christian dealers to build silos in Abuja. And if you know anything about the, um, the geography of Nigeria, Nigeria is the largest African country with 120 million people. And tragically, although it earns 20 billion a year from oil, it now can no longer feed itself. So you've got a situation where you've got, and you may all remember Biafra and the problems that they were with Nigeria. Even if we leave all the politics aside, we forget about the oil problems, we forget about Biafra, the Niger, and we look at the situation where you've got 120 million people can no longer feed themselves, and they are chewing through 20 billion a year in oil. You realize that if we can bring something to the table and we can help those people, we can then hopefully open the dialogue between the farmers in the north who don't really like selling to the Christians in the south, and the line between Muslim north and Christian south goes right through the capital, Abuja. And if you don't know, Abuja is like Brasilia. It was a manufactured capital that was built in the middle of the plains, Lagos is in the south, and the part of the reason it was done was to balance power. So I found it very interesting comparing notes with Robert in the Philippines with his dialogue between the Christian mayors and the people in his villages and the Muslims in the south and their fight for independence and recognition by Manila. And I was doing a very similar job in Secure Livelihoods where I was trying to get the trust of these Muslim farmers to sell their goods to an intermediary to bring the grain down to the south where, of course, the majority of the people were and where we could stockpile it so that what would happen uh, today, when I was there, was that all that grain would come on the market at the same time in a six-week period. The price would be thoroughly lowered. Everyone would try and get their money because they've got their kids going to school, they've got their expenses to worry about, and they couldn't stockpile the grain. And everyone in the South was buying then. Six months later, the grain had gone up by a factor of four, and everyone was running out of grain. So you can imagine, 120 million people, and they can't feed themselves. If BSO CUSO and organizations like them can create that dialogue to be able to get those people to talk, I feel we've done a good job. And so I will go again. And if there's any volunteers here who are back and they would like to have some help, if we can help at all, um, I'm in commercial real estate. I also do governance. I do governance and uh, secure livelihoods. If you are having difficulty finding jobs and we can help, please feel free through Umida to contact me. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's a really fun.